Welcome to the Marshall Pro Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA. It is the week in IndyCar and our listener Q&A feature. Starting this much later than planned, it's 10.40 a.m. Thursday morning, California. As I kind of sort of mentioned in the open with our guest this week, Robin Miller. It's almost like there's been some news that might have preoccupied us a little bit and used up a whole bunch of time. Uh, Yeah, so we're going to dive into your questions, of which there are many, many, many going to consolidate many, knowing that there has been a lot of questions about James Hinchcliffe, the Aero McLaren SP team, something that our fine listener, Jim Johnstone, coined as spam a little while ago, which has just taken off completely. We've also been asked not to use that by the team, but, you know, there you go. (sighs) Yeah, turbulent week. Going to get to one piece of business so we can dive right into your questions as we do each week in addition to offering our continual praise and thank you to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers for being our primary partners. Our friends at torontomotorsports.com also do a pretty cool thing where each week on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast Facebook page, and yes, I'm saying my name a lot here, which is weird, we do our weekly call for questions, which forms this show. And on that little Facebook page, in that new post each week, where I do ask for those questions, we look back from the previous week, see whose question received the most likes, the most thumbs up, and torontomotorsports.com sends them a delightful little gift pack with your choice of MP podcast t-shirt. Could be Week in IndyCar, Week in Sports Cars, Hamburger and French Fry. Could be the brand new Joe Tonto Quarter Retrieval Service t-shirt. And you tend to get some stickers, who knows, a beer koozie, maybe a mug, depending on whatever my man Derek Koska has in stock there this week. So we do this to open each listener Q&A episode. Looking back, and so the winner uh, this time around, Darren Leonard, for our guest last week, Team Penske, Chief Mechanic on Joseph Newgarden's title-winning number two Chevy. So for Travis and myself, Darren Leonard said, uh, for the audience, the me personally audience, the hashtag me personally audience, the official hashtag of my little podcast here, there have been several questions regarding helmets and aero screens, and Darren asked if Penske has worked on or planned to work on any of the helmets with a specific manufacturer to figure out the impact of how the aero screen might influence driver helmet aerodynamics, cooling, you name it. So Darren's question, just trying to get a general idea on what from the team side they might be doing to engage with helmet manufacturers to figure out the ramifications of aero screen and helmet interaction. Darren's question got the most likes. So Darren, send me some sort of direct message with your email address and I'll get you connected with torontomotorsports.com and they will send you a delightful pack of fun. So that's the main thing here. As I mentioned, always you can game the system and get your friends to give your question lots of likes and just win by doing that. So Uh, Yeah, look forward to your questions next week. The ones this week are pretty amazing. And of which we're going to start with one. And I should also mention, by the way, 
since I am starting very late this week on the listener Q&A episode, I haven't had the chance to do my usual cut and paste across all the different submission platforms and put them in some form of order. So I'm just going to freewheel it a little here. I was going to say free ball. I guess I did just say free ball. Um, We're just going to roll here. You know, I'll just mention this up front as well. You ever get to that point where you are so tired that pouring yourself that cup of stout coffee or pounding the energy drink, all it does is make your stomach hurt. doesn't actually wake you up. You're beyond that point and just your insides feel really bad. Like, why did you just swallow acid? Yeah, that's kind of where I've been. So not feeling cranky, just at that little tip over point where caffeine, it ain't doing it. So I'm going to do my best here. If you hear snoring, that just means that I lost the war. So with all that said, let's get rolling here with your Q&A. All right, where shall we start? Well, (laughs) I don't have your tweet in front of me, but there was a kind gent who sent something in, actually not for the show, but I liked it enough, uh, on Twitter asking, how did this come to pass at Arrow McLaren SP with James Hinchcliffe being out of a seat? From what I gather, I can't claim this as fact because I was not sitting in on the meeting where they decided to stand James Hinchcliffe down in favor of Pato Award and Oliver Askew. But from what I have gathered goes something along the lines of they did not believe they did not see hinch as a future champion whether you believe that or don't believe that would say my view is a bit detached in that with the folks who have the money have the possessions have the employees have everything needed to go racing and also have the ability to pick and choose who they go racing with. Sounds like those who had Hinch on the payroll came to the conclusion that they did not see a title in their future with him. And with Oliver Askew already primed to join the team, they were prepared to go forward with Hinch and Oliver complete that final year of Hinch's contract and see what might be available afterwards. That was the plan that we knew of or hearing of as October went on. As many of you probably know, Patricio Ward became available after parting ways with Red Bull and all of a sudden the accepted plan Hinch plus Askew, veteran plus rookie, went sideways. And this is where things get a little bit, a little bit complicated for me. What we have is opportunity being presented to two young drivers. I'd say Pato in particular, most folks would look at and say he's demonstrated he's got something very special just has lacked consistent home in IndyCar in the one year that he tried to be here coming off of his lights title 
So I think most look at Pato and say, all right, we can see that guy's special. We know what his teammate, the guy he beat to the Indy Lights title, did in Colton Herta in his rookie year. If Pato, who again, and we just go off of that Lights season and that race they did together as teammates in Sonoma at the end of 2018, it would not be crazy to suggest Pato has the ingredients of something special. We'll take time to see if those ingredients can come together in an impressive package in terms of results. But I think few would argue against that. Something special here. You want to find out how special it could be. Askew, I would say, does not have that same level of understanding within IndyCar fans for the most part because most IndyCar fans don't follow Indy Lights or the Road to Indy very, very close to know that Askew's been a holy cow type talent since he arrived, since he came up from karting. So it's not a surprise to me that just in looking at reactions, award most people get. All right, something there. Askew, cooler reception, but I don't look at that as something personal against the kid. I just think folks don't know him yet, don't realize that he might actually, as I've told a couple of friends, he might actually end up being the most impressive of the two. Askew strikes me as somebody in terms of talent, mannerisms, mindset of the two. Oliver is the one that I think Penske is going to be calling in a few years, inquiring about when it comes time for a Will Power or whomever, maybe a Pagano to move on. That's He's in that model. No, it's early. Still hasn't turned his first lap of IndyCar practice. But just looking at the pipeline, he's got all the markings of someone who is going to be extraordinary. That's where I'd place the minds of McLaren and SP, Sam Schmidt, Rick Peterson. I would say knowing that what they had in Hinch, proven, right? You know what you're going to get from Hinch. Also ask you who they believe is a star of the future. That was what they'd planned to do. And the minute Pato became available, I know that it forced that group, McLaren in particular, to say, well, this is really the thing we were looking for when we were wanting to announce our collaboration at the beginning of August. So, strange, hard to reconcile, right? My friend David Malsher got quotes from Sam at the Portland IndyCar race saying, I have no idea where all these Questions come from about Hinch's future. He's got a contract with us. He'll be with us next year, etc. Zach Brown, two weeks ago or so, had quotes talking about looking forward to working with James and so on and so forth. So there had been indications given that sticking with Hinch was something they were going to do despite looking for alternatives when they were putting this 
McLaren SP effort together. So I know some of this is confusing because Robin Miller and I have been saying since that announcement came out, hey, don't believe everything you read. We know that Hinch put out that really nice thing on social media. Thanks, Honda. Looking forward to working with Chevy and so on and so forth. That was taken at face value. It's not a bad thing. Often happens. We knew behind the scenes it was for that exact purpose. Face value. Saying all the right things. Doing everything the way he should. Very professional. Because we know the paddock and know the vast majority of the players and have our sources and et cetera, et cetera. We knew right away that there were efforts on Hinch's behalf to look and see what kind of Honda opportunities could be found. We also know that on the McLaren SP side, they were looking for options other than Hinch, a leader other than Hinch well before the announcement was made. So it's another angle to maybe ponder here. Coming back to the why did they change from Hinch? I don't want to put this in too harsh of a tone because it isn't meant to sound like two folks doing bad things. But there does need to be a little bit of clarity here in that the team, if we're thinking of, (laughs) I don't want to put it in terms of cheating uh, or adultery, but if you think of the two sides of this union, uh, even though McLaren was a new member of this union, uh, if you think of the team side and the driver side of this union, one side was looking, had its eyes looking elsewhere at options before the announcement. The other side, learning of this change in manufacture from Chevy to Honda, uh, started looking for options to remain in the Honda camp. So just bear in mind, while all this was not presented right up front, obviously in the McLaren SP press release from early August, it didn't say, hey, we're coming together, and by the way, we're looking to get rid of Hinch. Uh, Nor did it say they went hard after Colton Herta as their new team leader. These are all things that were on the Colton side were acknowledged later. These things are known. So if we wind the clock forward to October 30th, the official confirmation of Hinch's stand being stood down as a driver, it could come as a shock and surprise for what we had known and whether it was in video between Robin and myself, what I've been saying on the podcast since almost day one, since of this announcement uh, in words between Robin and myself, between Robin and I, I should say, hashtag me personally. This is something that the culmination of a lot of discussions, decisions, explorations, and reckonings behind the scenes that came out in the news on October 30th, officially, a few days before when Robin and I broke the story on Racer.com. These are all things that have been bubbling up. They were two halves looking to see if they could improve their situations with others. It didn't happen in time when the announcement happened initially. One side afterwards kept looking, kept looking, continued to look for ways to stay in the Honda family 
through the season finale, as I wrote, and as you've heard me say here in recent weeks, there were ongoing discussions. Don't know if I should say negotiations. I'm not sure if it ever reached that phase, but of ways Honda was exploring to see how it might get Hinch out of his contract with the team. That didn't come to fruition. And as the scenario started to look like staying with the Chevy-powered Aero McLaren SP team was truly the one and only solid thing Hinch had to grab onto, that's where the, the story started to shift in October. Been looking. Nothing really came to pass. Wasn't able to get out of that contract team said okay you're our guy has been saying you're our guy while knowing again their eyes were always waiting for someone to walk by someone did walk by and all of those assurances came to nothing where there's a little bit of weirdness here to close on the how it came to pass side and i realize i've written this so you might have read it But there was a clear intent expressed to Hinch that he would be driving for this team next year, and those assurances continued to come throughout October to the point where next week, I think it's next Tuesday, November 5th, he was scheduled to drive the new Chevy-powered number 5 Air McLaren SP entry at Sebring. Same day, same place where Sebastian Bourdais will be doing his first test with the aero screen. My pal Seb, who decided to try and light me up on social media over doing my job. Um, (laughs) He's French. It's okay. We excuse that. He also says, yeah, but you're American. So I think those things cancel each other out. Nonetheless, for those who might think that Hinch is just being naive and silly and didn't you see the writing on the wall and yada, yada, yada. Yeah, in August, for sure. I even say September a little bit. But clearly there was a, a strong point where it had been driven home to him over and over again. You're our guy. You're, you are our guy. And so when that call came Sunday night, as he has now said in a social media post, he was shocked, truly shocked. And not shocked because he's naive and hadn't heard about Aero McLaren SP's wandering eye, trying to see if it can, if it can upgrade. It's because assurances had been given. And to the point to where he's planning to be on a flight here in a couple of days to head down to Florida to do the team's first off-season test. You don't do that. If you you don't climb into someone's car if you aren't expecting to be with them and they aren't expecting to be to have you back. You don't go through that process. You don't tell someone, "Hey, your flight is this time this day. Your rental car number is such and such, reservation 12345, hotel is this." You don't go through those steps if you are planning on making a change. So just sharing a little bit of insight from 
a driver's perspective who was just caught completely off guard by this. Last thing I'll mention here, and then we're going to move on to non-hinch, non-everything topics. I really hope that Pato and Oliver don't get caught up as collateral damage in this unpleasant, messy handling of the Hinchcliffe situation. We've seen on social media, Ryan Hunter Ray, Connor Daly, Graham Rahal, Mario Andretti, and others, to varying degrees, just light up Arrow McLaren SP for their handling of Hinch, making this change so late in the offseason that he has no options. And I can tell you right now, it's not, I know this for a fact because words have been exchanged. He's got nothing. He has absolutely nothing right now. There's time for him to have something, but it sure isn't that easy to make that happen. If Pato had become available middle of September and they'd made the change, I don't think this would be an issue. I think we would be talking about the Dale Coin Racing partnership of Sebastian Bourdais and James Hinchcliffe. Due to the timing of when Pato became available and then the team's decision to rotate James out of the car because they just, again, I believe they just don't feel he's the guy who can deliver them the the success, championships, something that they're seeking. No, he can deliver race wins, but I don't know if, if they see him being able to do more than that. The timing of this sucks. Maybe that's the take-home note. The timing of this is brutal. A month ago, six weeks ago, non-issue. Probably still would have shocked folks, but there were things to be had, things that Hinch's loyal supporters on the Honda side, uh, Petro Canada lubricants, and maybe a few others, I'm confident they could have put together a support package that would have met Dale Coyne halfway. Dale with his second car, whether it's an Ed Jones, a Santino Ferrucci or whomever, Dale tends to come out of pocket about halfway to fund that thing. Fairly confident that with Hinch on the market, that would have happened very quickly. Nonetheless, that hasn't happened. And I'm hoping that the two kids who've gotten an amazing opportunity don't get too much hate, if any hate. I mean, they don't deserve it. They've done nothing. If we think about the opportunities that every seriously talented IndyCar driver has received, it often has come at someone else's expense. Hey, this driver, boy, we don't know about them, or whatever the situation might be. Rarely do we have a clean scenario where one seat or both seats are given to young talents without some form of older driver. Someone like Hinch, he's only 32. You know, he's nine years in. 
should have another nine years at least, you know, mid-journey IndyCar driver compared to tail end of their career driver. But it's going to happen at some point. You just hope that the circumstances in which it happens are nothing like what we have seen take place with the mayor of Hinchtown. Let's go here. Thomas Ayrton says, what are the realistic expectations for spam for Pato and Oliver? Are we talking finishing all races, top 10 in points, maybe winning a few races? Ask that to those guys, Thomas, when I had them uh, on the podcast yesterday, I'll disregard what they said and just share that it is almost impossible to answer that right now because we do not know what their engineering tree is going to look like. can say that if we look to staff from 2019, uh, Blair Pershbacher, who worked with Marcus Erickson, wasn't an awesome year for them, but I know that if we go back to 2018, when Blair was working with Robert Wickens, woo, right? No question Blair can put a fast car beneath somebody. Look at Will Anderson, who, what, this would have been his first full-time season as a race engineer? No, maybe second, but first full with Hinch, I should say. I believe last year with the changes in engineering with Lena Gade and such, then moving to Will, who came over from Shank, He was outsourced to Shank from Schmidt, yada, yada. Uh, Will, lots of potential. Obviously already won a race with Hinch last year at Iowa. Still learning, though. I would say just look at the team there, the technical director that they hired, Todd Malloy. He left shortly after the Aero McLaren SP announcement came out. This was not a fine year overall for the team in terms of engineering, just Coming out of the gates, their off-season efforts, plans, and all right, this is going to be the magic formula. wasn't so magical. Glimpses of speed, but more often than not, they were missing a tenth or two, and that is a lethal deficit these days. So just comes back, Thomas, to a case of I'd be very surprised if Blair was not one of an engineer for one of the two guys. I don't, again, I truly don't know if they're going to continue with both, if they're going to change both. I do not know what they're going to do in terms of hiring a new technical director or moving someone of that caliber over from the McLaren side of things in the UK. I just don't know. And so with that said, it makes it impossible to tell you what the expectations, realistic expectations should be. I can tell you that if they have stellar race engineers and a absolute ace technical director leading them down very positive and productive R&D avenues during the offseason, Pato should be winning at least one race next year. Oliver should be winning at least one race next year. And... Maybe the easier way to put this, Thomas, is if I took Pato and Oliver out of the spam scenario, since we have this question mark right now about engineering, 
and drop them into an Andretti Autosport, a Penske, a Ganassi, where we do have a finer idea of what the uh, the engineering talents and, and history looks like, I would say we would be bitterly disappointed at the end of 2020 if the two of them had yet to win a race. They absolutely should. Uh, just between the two, again, reiterating something I mentioned here towards the open, I don't expect Oliver to be the big showy one in the beginning. I mean, Pato is all about fireworks, right? If there is a daring pass to make something that is breathtaking, that's just in the kid's genes. He is amazing. Oliver, I think he's he's going to be the slow burn guy. But once he gets, once that temperature rises, yeah. <laughs> there's a Scott Dixon-like quality about Askew's everything. Uh, there's a little bit of a Rick Mears thing in his eye. So I'm not saying he's going to be Rick Mears, not saying he's going to be Dixon, just telling you that in knowing those two legends and greats, having watched them race up close, seeing how they do what they do, their mannerisms, just their mindset, the focus, there's a locked-in thing about Askew that in a room full of young, next-generation stars, there's only one or two that have that look. And that look, it goes back to, it's a shared thing that you will find with some folks that have done... (laughs) done a lot of business in IndyCar. They got a lot of rings on their fingers. They got a lot of baby Borg sitting at home. So realize that that talent has to be shaped, formed, and then we'll find out. There have been a lot of great drivers, Indy Lights champions as well, who have just been amazing coming up to IndyCar. Get there and it doesn't quite pan out. I don't think that's going to be the case with Oliver. I don't want to overset expectations, but... Don't be surprised if by the midpoint of the season, latter stages of the season, this Ask You kid is starting to make folks stand up and take notice. Let's see. Let's go to Bob Fay. Says, hey, Marshall, going to run this question by you guys. Do you think since John Doonan is the new IMSA president, the doubleheader with IndyCar Watkins Glen could have more of a chance of happening? Know that I answered this in the episode with Robin a day or two ago, but wanted to share this here because it's something that a few folks have asked in some way, shape, or form in recent weeks. I definitely think there's a chance. I I definitely believe, Bob, and for those who would love to see such a thing, John Doonan is someone who is more interested in what is best for everyone than just trying to fight on IMSA's behalf. What does that mean? Well, since Watkins Glen is owned by NASCAR, ISC, International Speedway Corporation, if they can put more people through the gates, if they can sell more campground plots, if they can just do more business, and that means getting IndyCar back to be with IMSA, I would see John being a strong proponent of that. So I need to, uh, I need to keep suggesting that. Going to go to Stephen Kilsdonk. 
says, Marshall, best wishes to you and your wife. Thank you, Stephen. How's this for an idea that makes too much sense to happen? Ed Carpenter Racing and Carlin Racing form a technical alliance. Ed Carpenter drives the Gallagher Carnovals with Max Chilton driving on the Twisties. ECR then has the capacity to hire Renus VK to partner with Spencer Piggott at all the races. ECR helps Carlin's oval package, and the combined four cars can pull data and develop a better road course package. It's a great, great idea, Stephen. That'll probably never happen. And that's because our man Ed Carpenter, not a big fan of alliances, not a big fan of trying to help others, uh, give other folks a chance to improve themselves. Uh, He's all about ECR. Team is celebrating its eighth anniversary this week, I'm told. Uh, I love the idea. I just don't see Ed thinking, hey, how can I do something that actually improves a rival? He has said out loud, that is not something he is fond of. So I think that's where the stumbling block would come. Mention this as well. Renus, I have heard, will be a full-time driver. So looking forward to that quite a bit. Hope, hopefully we'll have more details on that being confirmed uh, here very, very soon. I'm just going to be scrolling here. Don't have everything in front of me as I normally would. I apologize. Go to Paul Trahan who says, MP, love the story about shenanigans. Shenanigans. I'm actually going to pause here and just drink more coffee, knowing that it's probably not going to do anything. Love the story about shenanigans. When you first got your license, it reminded me, hashtag me personally, of all the antics I had with my 87 Mazda RX-7 Turbo. Question time. If you could see any sponsor return to a car or team, who would you like to see? (sighs) This is a, a question that, I, I disappoint myself in what comes to mind first, Paul. Uh, as Americans, at least, we have freedom aplenty. Smoking, certainly a freedom that a number of Americans behold for themselves. Uh, my father smoked as long as I could remember. My mother as well. Uh, put my father in the ground, unfortunately, due to his love for Marlboro Reds. So uh, cigarettes have they've never been a, a, a friend of mine. The only thing I can say here, though, which I'm disappointed that I'm saying, but it, it's honest, is the sponsors that I miss most from IndyCar are the tobacco sponsors, knowing that they did nothing positive for the human race (laughs) while here, but the sheer volume of cash that they brought to enrich the teams that they sponsored, the amount of advertising dollars they spent to bring awareness to the series. And in so many cases, the amount of tickets that they bought to give away all part of whatever promotion they were doing to try and get folks to buy their product, the amount of tickets that they bought to, I wouldn't say ensure the grandstands were full, like, hey, we're going to try and game things a little bit here and make the racing look more popular than it really is. It's not, you know, I wouldn't put it in that category. But they spent collectively 
brutal amounts of money and used ticket giveaways as a great way to make sure that so many of the, in particular, the 80s and 90s, early 2000s, but mostly last half of the 80s, all throughout the 90s, you look at photos from the vast majority of cart races, and boy, it's grandstands. We would give anything to have grandstands that look like that at every race. The little secret, maybe, is that in many instances, it was a Marlboro buying a block of 10,000 tickets or Brown and Williamson, the folks behind Cool, or Players, or Hollywood, or, 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 or. A lot of brands came in, spent money, and did a lot of giveaways. So the fact that it was products that create cancer, eh, that maybe was never awesome. I never cared for it. I'm fortunate to have never worked for an IndyCar team that was sponsored by tobacco brand. Uh, I know that doesn't mean anything, but it is actually something that I thought of back then and used as some sort of guide as to choosing uh, who I wanted to work for. Um, But I, how's this? Despite the known risks and damage caused by smoking and cigarettes, I cannot, no one can deny, no one can dispute the prosperity brought to IndyCar by the various brands that made lots of people rich and filled lots of grandstands and made the cart IndyCar series a hugely popular thing. Uh, this They were collectively a group that brought awareness to the series unlike just about anyone or anything I have seen before or after. Going to go to Andy Bauer. Any word on Pietro Fittipaldi ever coming back to IndyCar? He says, sitting on the Haas timing stand, watching them implode each week. Can't be much fun. It's a great question, Andy. I was actually thinking about the little fart recently. So I'll need to drop him a text message and just see how he's doing and if i remember i'll see if any thoughts from him on being able to get back to indycar uh let's see gonna go to ed joris been holding on this for a while i noticed that during his quote spam availability at the end of the season ted klaus of honda performance development referred to andretti ganassi and ray hall as strategic partners i assume this is because they were all signed through the year when a third manufacturer might join 2022 but where does this leave coin dale coin racing other than playing the role of quote the team we're willing to lose in the potential third manufacturer expansion draft good question ed uh would also say that you know we have meyer shank racing in there as well uh so let's not forget them yeah we have a, a scenario where honda as a independent manufacturer with no rules prohibiting its decision-making to spend money or, or align itself in closer ways with some teams more than others. Not a big surprise to see that they have you know, really, truly grabbed Andretti and Ganassi tightly 
Ray Hall was not the case. That's a bit of a, a recent change. We've heard Graham, I think, and Bobby Grouse a little bit in the past about, uh, hey, we're winning races for you guys too. So good to see that that's happened there. On the coin front, don't take this as me knowing this because someone at Honda told me. It's just trying to put myself in Honda's thought processes. If I think of Andretti Ganassi and Ray Hall, I think of three teams with all pro lineups. I know that we might look at Andretti and say, well, Marco might not be contributing a lot. And Zach, obviously, two years into his career, you know, hasn't set the world on fire. But you could say that for what the Andretti team will be next year, for example, between Rossi, Hunter Ray, and Herta, that's a fearsome <laughs> trio. You look at Ganassi with Rosenquist and Dixon, already monster, monster duo. Then you add Marcus Erickson, who we believe is going to be a stronger participant next year in higher results. And then we look at Ray Hall with Graham. Obviously, I know he's had a little bit of a downtime of late, but we know that guy's someone who can win multiple races each year. Takuma Sato, right? That guy's winning like we didn't expect. You can look at those three, Ed, and say, even if there might be one or two drivers across those three teams that won't be bothering you, won't be bothering the podium uh, on any kind of regular basis, you can look at those three and say, consistent, winning, champions, something in those ra- something in that range. With coin, no disrespect, you have one of its two entries that is solid in Sebastian Bourdais. Again, know that this past season wasn't everything they'd hoped to be. A little bit of a down year overall, but Seb, someone who you expect to win at least one race a year, be running up front more often than not. I think that second car, Ed, might be the thing that knocks coin down a level in Honda's eyes because it is a bit of a rotating door. We think Santino is going to be back. Very confident he will. That'd be great. Same driver two years in a row. It's usually not the case, though, right? It's usually who is going to step in. What's the new person? That's not a bad thing. I mean, it's been a gateway for young talent to get into the series. That's amazing. But I think if I am Honda and I'm looking at which partners might become the uh, strategery ones, I might say that, well, you know, at Coin, there's, there's one. There's one car. And the other one, more often than not, is just, you know, it's a, a bit of a question mark each year. Therefore, it might be hard to attach any kind of favored status as a result. But also, I'd say coming back to this, they did help a little bit uh, with, you know, some some sim testing as well for Seb, spending some time in the simulator prior to Toronto. Did a story about that. He said how much that helped. So, yeah, we will uh, we'll see if that changes. I think if Santino is indeed back, 
and we have a duo that is looking consistent year to year. I think the preferred partner thing might expand there for sure. We also know that on the Shank side, uh, they work very closely with HPD and IMSA. So you could, <laughs> it would be strange for them to be so close in one series and then distant from the other, right? So I don't think it'll be long before, frankly, everybody using a Honda is just part of that favored nation status. As for the expansion draft, we'd have to see if and when a third manufacturer gets here. I, I'm hoping to get an update on this very soon. I'm slightly worried we haven't heard much of anything about manufacturers' new names, even names that might have been in play before. Haven't heard any rumblings of anything perking up. I know we're still a good ways away from this new formula hitting, but be honest here, I'm a little concerned we might not. If we're not hearing it now, I can't think of the reasons why we would hear about it next year or the following year. Uh, yeah, so more on that later. Let's go to Jeff Elner. Says, are promoters wanting to do more doubleheader type races? And if so, where? To make a doubleheader more interesting, how about running the other way on a track? Counterclockwise one day and clockwise the next. A managed car is turning hard left at Canada Corner. Good old road. America. I've heard nothing, Jeff, about promoters other than Detroit wanting to do doubleheaders. Uh, it was floated. It was tried. I don't think there's a lot of anything coming back on that front, though. I really don't. I do love the idea of running countercourse. That's that'd be a blast. I mean, I'm I'm more thinking. Imagine going uh, backward. You know, uh, making the turn out of the final corner, which is turn one. Uh, hanging that left and blasting down the front straight in reverse and halfway down the front straight, you start going downhill pretty rapidly. Uh, I can only imagine the top speeds that would be hit at the bottom of the hill. And then you have to brake pretty hard and turn left. Oh boy. Yeah. Ooh, this would be fun. Uh, let's see. Cam Tyler asks, what's the odds of Hinch if he's not in IndyCar next season? What about Honda sending him to Japan to compete in Super Formula or Super GT? Uh, I would just say, Cam, let's not overestimate how heavily Honda, either Honda Canada, American Honda, are involved with Hinge from a financial standpoint. He's not a factory guy. So this is... It's a, a worthy distinction to make. Whereas Alexander Rossi is someone whose future at Andretti Autosport was secured in part because of commitments made by Honda. Hinch has not been that guy. Period. If you think about the stuff we read, hey, uh, Rossi is going back to Baja in a Honda Ridgeline and did it last year and was in a Acura Team Penske IMSA entry. These are all things that come as part of being one of Honda Performance Development's key drivers. I mean, truly, one of the top two or three. Just 
end a statement. Hinch has not been that guy. So while money has come in and some support will be provided, uh, he's not, quote, their guy to say, all right, well, if we, we haven't been able to find you a seat in IndyCar, where can we send you to compete next year? Uh, I'd love if it were that case, Cam. But that's not been his reality. There is help and support there. There is an effort to try and make things good and make things happen for him. But just need to couch expectations a little bit. Uh, the folks at HPD, American Honda, Honda Canada are not getting on conference calls saying who all's chipping in the money so we can make Hinch do A, B, or C. Uh, there's definite commitments to help, but not solve the problem uh, altogether. Or I would even say half the problem. And that's not a criticism by any means. It's amazing, frankly, that anybody, you know, the fact that any manufacturer would want to spend money on any driver these days, it's pretty amazing because it, it used to be the way it's become a rarity in our world. So the fact that there are, you know, there is manufacturer interest trying to help hinch that's phenomenal just not something to the point of them pointing and directing him to go do anything anywhere here's a great question and i fear all right let me take another sip of coffee because i might need it here david barker you sent this in for robin and i i didn't pose it with robin because he would have no idea what you're talking about i do fortunately he says you're both brought into cast for a new star trek the next generation reboot who in indycar do you cast he says hashtag me personally roger penske is captain picard of course scott dixon is data alexander rossi is Jordy. zach veach would be wesley crusher and aj foyt would guest star as dr mccoy uh yeah <laughs> i like what you're doing here you, you nailed some of them i would say david uh, RP is Picard, of course. I mean, you got it right there. Um, I'm not seeing Dixon as data. I know there's, I don't get this rep. I know that he has this reputation of that guy. It is just so not who he is. That is Rossi. Rossi is data, 100%. Um, Jordy, who's Jordy? That might be Connor Daly. Yeah, that might be Connor Daly for sure. Uh, Veach as Wesley Crusher, you absolutely nailed that. Um, Dr. McCoy, though. Yeah, we don't want the doc solving all problems with a hammer. So I'm actually going to rotate Foyt out and replace him with Uncle Bobby. Huh? (laughs) Imagine what he could do with a turkey baster. And I'll leave it at that. I love this, David. And I would just suggest to you all, my dear listeners, these are these are some of my favorite questions that come in, right? I mean, we can talk about uh, who's going to drive this car and why they do hinch dirty and, you know, all that stuff. That's the normal stuff. I expect that every week. It's all good. The fun stuff here, the, the alternate reality questions. Yeah, the more of these you have, the better. Send them in because, yeah, this is a blast. Um, where are we going to go next? We go to... Kevin Pinkston says, maybe we ought to do an all-star event at a venue that IndyCar doesn't have on the schedule, as Marshall mentioned before. 
So seeing how in the last two years the SVRA has been running a celebrity race at VIR in the fall, maybe we could get Honda to bring 20 or 30 production Civic SIs, make half the field IndyCar drivers, fill the other half with celebrity drivers already in attendance, have them participate in the autograph session that's already part of the festivities, then cap it off with one or two current cars, current Indy cars to do demo runs around the track. MP, best wishes to you and prayers to your wife. Thank you, Kevin. Ed Roberts also adds something similar along these lines. You know, I just love the idea of whether it's a dedicated IndyCar all-star race, which you've heard me talk about recently, bringing that back as we once had with the Marlboro Challenge, whether it's joining in on a vintage racing event, whether it is whatever. I know these things cost money. I realize that money is not something that IndyCar has to just throw around. But there's, there's lessons to be taken here, Formula One in particular where you look at the event they just had in Hollywood uh, on Wednesday. This is something where, while, I don't know how many people were in attendance, a thousand maybe, I don't know what the number was. I mean, you know, it wasn't, it was one block or so, block, maybe two blocks of uh, downtown Hollywood that was cordoned off, but just turned into an event. And while the on-site numbers of people might not have been massive, it was IG'd and tweeted and book-faced and streamed all over. This is something that gives the impression to a local audience, but more importantly, an international audience, that this series is big, important, fun, and connecting with people who love new and interesting experiences like, you know, frankly, noise and colors and just excitement. And I just say, IndyCar right now would really benefit from stepping away from its 100-plus years of history in this regard. Yes, been around forever. You're brick-and-mortar part of the American experience. We love you. You're amazing. You're everything. Also, not as versatile when it comes to engaging with 2019, 2020, what folks tend to like, what they want to do. When was the last time IndyCar did something that wasn't kind of sort of predictable, right? We're going to put on these races. We've got spring training. We're going to send some drivers out to go and talk on TV shows or whatever else, you know. Okay, you know, again, this is, you are serving the base. You are making sure that, you know, you're ticking all the boxes. Let's talk about the outreach, though. What kind of fun, what kind of interesting things can you do to engage new fans? What kind of things can you do to demonstrate that, hey, we're not just trying to appeal to old white guys? <laughs> Uh, and that's again, not a criticism, but I mean, look, I'm 48 years old and white, you know, look, that's me I'm just saying, Hey, what are the things you're doing to you know, get out in the world? Uh, maybe remind the folks who forgot about you that you're here. More importantly, let the folks who never knew you existed know that you're here. 
Think about the drivers we have, right? As Daniel Ricardo and Max Verstappen, Alexander Albon and Valtteri Botas were doing donuts yesterday in Hollywood and ripping up and down the, the street and all the local area uh, TV cameras were there and all kinds of stand-up features and the nightly news and the this and that, right? Whoa, look at this thing. You know, they came to our town and put it on. There's not a race here as well. <laughs> the race is in Texas, right? They didn't do this in Dallas. They did do it in Houston, San Antonio, wherever else. They did it in Hollywood. It tells you, hey, you know, we're trying to be friendly and open and warm and and bring us to you instead of always asking you to come to us. Comes back to the same default. Costs money. No, it's not cheap. No, it's not free. Just, I don't know how much longer IndyCar, IndyCar can afford to be in that mindset of playing from the same old script, ticking the same old boxes, and watching its growth be a really incremental thing. Another thing, maybe, just because I'm American and have a competitive mindset for the home team, the fact that Formula One comes here and puts on these big shows and gets lots of Americans wound up for their product and we're doing nothing on our home soil to try and again engage with people who might not know about us uh yeah not so sure about that i mean great on formula one it's a brilliant strategy i don't know why we don't think of ourselves as needing to compete for the same audience tv commercials not going to be the thing that grows the audience in any significant way. Just saying. Would love, love to see James Hinchcliffe, Alexander Rossi, Joseph Newgarden, Colton Herta, Pato O'Ward, Felix Rosenquist, and on and on in their indie cars. Whether it's new indie cars, whether it's previous generation cars, like they do with uh, the demos here with old F1 cars with the 2.4 liter V8s, I don't care what it is. Uh, we got some amazing drivers. We got some big, fun personalities. Got some complex personalities. Got a lot of people. I mean, IndyCar, telling you, an IndyCar press conference tends to be a, a it's funny. It's engaging. It's a lot of things. We have amazing personalities. Why aren't we bringing those personalities to the people with excitement to get them to try and pay attention to us? Come out to our races in the future if you like what you see, but you know, come meet us. Come see what we are. We're going to put on a show. Colton and the Zibs are going to play. Actually, we shouldn't. Those guys are terrible. Don't tell them, though. Uh, kidding aside, who knows? Maybe our one of our drivers bands is going to play i don't know uh i know that a lot of a lot of effort goes into the indy 500 celebrities coming out and dinners and galas and all kind. it's great it's a super bowl party right you know people are already there for the super bowl they're there because they love football uh, it's nice that you put on these big beautiful showy things but uh, 
you've you're you're you've already won that crowd. This is your congregation. Uh, IndyCar is not winning on the uh, traveling, evangelizing topic. So, I hope that something along those lines, Kevin and Ed, whether all star races do or don't happen, the idea of bringing themselves to a vintage race where you know there's anybody who turns up for a vintage race truly loves motor racing hey maybe you forgot about us let us show you some of who we are today some of what we have today going to new york going to miami going to pick wherever it is and letting folks see in a downtown setting who we are um yeah i hope we get there at some point in time let's go to zachary bircham says Probably an obvious question here, but there are two types of financial supporters for drivers, sponsors, and uh, maybe there's also a third one for seemingly benevolent supporters. He says, when you mentioned that Marcus Erickson has significant backing uh, for his car, uh, it wasn't significantly different from his teammates. He says, what are the supporters getting? Seems like it might be similar to the Foyt cars, uh, where while both drivers uh, were bringing funding, I guess Matthias, or Matthias Laced, Brings more, but the car still sports ABC colors. A lot of interesting things in here, Zachary. I'll try and cover it off quickly. As I understand, in Marcus's case, uh, there's just been a number of very wealthy, wealthy supporters in Sweden who have helped put money together to make sure that uh, next generation talent could make his way up the ladder and into Formula One. And now that he's over an IndyCar, I mean, I've heard that, you know, those backers are, are, you know, not unleashing crazy amounts of money by any means. But the truth is, this is not a, an uncommon thing at all. Uh, think about Scott Dixon. <laughs> if you want to think about this in a odd way, Scott Dixon coming to America was a pay driver. Uh, Justin Wilson pay driver how so and and it's a little bit i need to explain but these are guys whose careers had stalled coming out of f3000 for justin in particular to get to formula one this is someone who didn't have the budget and essentially sold stock in himself and so in exchange for money he sold percentage of his future earnings and so Instead of it being a case of true sponsors giving money to him to give to a team or giving to the team on behalf of having him drive for them, this wasn't a gift. This wasn't, here's just say $5 million, Team X, and we want you to run Justin Wilson. He actually sold himself and had to pay that money back. So think of it as you know, a loan basically a long-term loan Dixon similar thing having to get his career going so overstated things a little bit about them being paid drivers coming into IndyCar but it's not too far removed in order to get their careers moving along they had to come up with money that they were not receiving were not finding from sponsors so they sold themselves and used that money to make racing opportunities happen. So 
when we see someone like an Erickson or a Matthias Leist or Tony Kanon or Zach Veach, uh, Santino Ferrucci uh, is another one who you know brings a budget with him. Not huge. Most of these guys, I think, except for Zach, we're not talking a full budget, you know, half, roughly half. In some cases, less than half. But I mean, just scrolling quickly through the full-time entry list here, Max Chilton's father supports things. Jack Harvey has sponsors that back him. Ed Jones uh, has brought family money. Mateus Laced, family money plus Brazilian TV money. Zach Veach, external sponsor. Marcus Erickson, personal backers. Tony Kanon has brought some sponsors to help. Uh, Spencer Piggott has had to bring money in IndyCar. Santino, we've already covered. Hinch has had some loyal supporters as well. Uh, let's see. Takuma Sato, right? Uh, that Panasonic money, uh, that, you know, the support from Honda, right? Uh, who else? I mean, I'm working down the list here. You could say Colton Herta, right, with the Steinbrenners and Indy Lights for sure, helping to make that happen. Uh, you know, you work up the list a little ways, and more than half, more than half of the IndyCar grid in some way brings money, has sponsors that come with them. There's something that happens where the team's budget is assisted. I can't really think of many. I mean, it's true. It's just, you can't even count them on one hand that bring actual family money. M- you know, mom or dad brings money. There, There's not as many. Once there were many. The rarity, the true rarity, are the drivers these days who are 100% paid with no attachment from personal sponsors or backers or family members helping to make their seat happen. So we would just say that, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of ways things get done, Zach. Um, not always totally clear, though, <laughs> to what degree. Uh, let's see. Uh, Gabe Argenta. I think I have an answer to this. It might be wrong. Please tell me if it isn't, those who know. He asked, when did shifting on ovals become standard practice? He says, we... See teams today running with their 4th, 5th, and 6th gears. They're stacked just a few hundred RPMs apart, but even all small ovals. We see drivers drop down a gear in the turns to keep it in the power band. Cars still had two speeds up through the 1960s, right? Uh, yeah, many. I would say the the real shifting era kicked off heavily in the 70s, Gabe, uh, when a number of manufacturers really started offering solutions. So, yeah, the the rowing through the gears type thing we've heard, uh, you hear now, all just done through paddle shifts. I mean, that happens in a blink of an eye. Super easy, super convenient. Uh, but, yeah, truly the 70s is where we started to see multiple manufacturers come in, uh, building you know, heavy-duty gearboxes, a lot of them with Formula One experience. So this is uh, folks who 
having to beef things up since indy cars in the 70s especially when turbocharging just took over the sport you know we're making two three hundred horsepower more than an f1 engine just on average and then got to a point where it could be double the power so yeah the uh the stronger weissman's hewlands and so on uh zf's those gearboxes started to become more versatile than just high and low let's go to dylan burgett who says here's my hashtag me personally completely bonkers silly season prediction tony Kanon and eric cowden will go as a team to dale coin any thoughts on that baseless idea i have no thoughts dylan uh yeah um that's an interesting one would say that cowden i expect cowden to be working yeah who knows he may have already been hired by somebody but the plan was and is for a pretty awesome i'd say even genuinely awesome olivier boisson to move over and engineer the second coin car olivier was sebastian bourdais race engineer at kv racing came with seb to coin worked and has been working uh, on the damping side and you know, call it assistant engineer i don't want to say co-race engineer next to craig hampson i mean they try and split up duties so that they make ground instead of just double up and cover each other in the same things but yeah the plan here is for olivier to engineer santino and although michael cannon has moved on i don't foresee any disruption in santino's progress or capabilities despite a fairly significant change like this all right let's uh let's see where shall we go next so it's only now that i realize i forgot to send out the call for questions on twitter <sighs> but i tell you it's been a busy week all right sorry there and if i did and i just can't find it and you all sent in questions on twitter i mean just let me have it just i mean you already do which i love but you know just no mercy please so what we do have left that i can find in what must be my most hapless episode of listener q a for the week in indycar comes in from the reddit indycar group sent over by matt record thanks again matt truly appreciate your help in organizing these number of the questions related to a certain mayor of hinchtown not a big surprise i think i mentioned this before i think that there is the possibility of a new entry coming in did not mention where did not mention who i can't because those conversations are still taking place well behind the scenes and having helped make some introductions there uh not at that stage yet but there is one scenario that if it does pan out can't say if it'd be for 2020 i think 21 could be more likely but there's still a chance smaller chance it could be for next year hinch would actually be the perfect driver representative ambassador just 
everything about Hinch fits this possible entry perfectly. So I apologize. I can't tell you the who and what and where. And I think I mentioned in the past, uh, I was coming from outside of IndyCar. That's still about all I can say. I did get an update yesterday, last night, I believe, either late afternoon or early evening on how those talks are going and everything was positive still. And I I've, will admit here, I've alerted Hinch to the fact that while no information is ready to be shared, there is something beginning to brew that would absolutely be perfect for him. So uh, he and I both said, we'll catch up more on that here in the, uh, in the near future when things have calmed down a little bit on his end. So just going to use that as maybe the one thing related to Hinch, since we do have oh, more than half uh, of the questions come in from Reddit regarding to uh, regarding Hinch and future and whatnot. I'll take a look here as, as I look through the rest of the questions and see if anything, a new angle related to all this comes out that I might cover but until we get there, let's go to Cogit uh, Five GT, who, uh, yeah, uh, thankfully is referring to my references last week of uh, vehicular codes that I might have broken. It says MP chose a number four hundred two in his traffic stop story. This talking about today's after getting my driver's license, getting pulled over for uh, trying to impress a friend in our uh, the Saab. 99 turbo that my dad let me drive i think it was a 99 whatever and pulling out right in front of a cop and not even knowing it and getting pulled over uh says mp chose a number 402 in his traffic stop story according to the stanford edu site california penal code of 402 b is an abandoned refrigerator not indeed uh the vehicular thing i mentioned pruitt got out of a ticket because of an appliance I love I love you guys. I love doing this show. It's a blast. Uh, let's see. Well, that's a really nice note from Car Guy thirteen thirteen thirteen. It says thanks for all you do for IndyCar and sports car communities. You entertain us and provide an in depth look into the series of love so much year round. That's really kind. Uh, I've asked this question before, but it was overlooked. My fault. So I figured I'd ask as the off season got into full swing. Here was whatever became of the steering damper, which. Jan Bikas displayed during one of his video segments a few years back. At the time, it was a prototype, but it seemed as though it was fairly mature. Did it end up getting implemented, or did it end up not meeting IndyCar safety standards? Or is the answer something else entirely? Thanks. That comes from Mike M. Going to have to do my best with memory here, Mike. This is an initiative that was spawned by former IndyCar competition director technical boss Derek Walker this was stemming from the numerous wrist injuries that were coming somewhat early early-ish in the Delara DW12's uh, introduction to the sport and everything from just high steering rate and effort being put in uh, a lot of kickback through the steering wheel over curbs by and large, the issue of wheel-to-wheel clashes since the DW12 really took robustness to a new level. And the concerns of hitting one another and 
breaking parts of the car and being out of the race, which served as a bit of a self-governing item prior to the DW12, uh, would just say the intensity ramped up. Folks knew that, I'm not saying they were hitting each other for fun, but just the amount of contact ramped up. Definitely a, a more feeling of invincibility due to the really stout front wings, end plates, the Kardashians at the back, and the width of the floor. Just, yeah. So we had a scenario where there are a number of drivers with wrist injuries, hand injuries from the increased contact. And so the thought was, is there something we could create? We could add to the general steering mechanism of the car that might limit that. So if we think just in a general wheel-to-wheel contact scenario, not going straight, but turning another car, maybe diving down the inside, locking up the brakes, uh, turn three in Toronto comes to mind where that happens a lot. And the one flying down the inside hits the car that's turning in that has some hard steering input already uh, done, hits that wheel for the driver who's already doing the turning on the outside. The forces just smash and whip the steering column in the opposite direction with their hands on the wheel, twist that wrist, maybe break it, maybe fracture something. This big, violent, violent thing. So the thought was, could we come up with a damping mechanism that would, in those instances, really try and slow down a violent change of direction so it doesn't injure a driver's hand, injure those wrists, break a finger. And they came up with a prototype, as I understand from conversations with Derek back then, that are still a little bit fuzzy, I, I hate to say, Mike. Just recall him saying that, yeah, it... it provided some help but to really prevent the massive instantaneous spike in forces going through the steering column going through the rack and then being transmitted up to the steering wheel and spinning it you know i'm making up a number but the steering wheel is going from zero to 60 and you know uh half of a tenth of a second, if that, maybe even faster. Just you've got control of a steering wheel that is not really moving it at a high rate and zoom, spins up. I just recall Derek saying something along the lines of the steering damper idea of being connected and trying to slow down forces. It offers some value, but the real problematic level, though that big hit, big spike in an instant there's no way we could actually reduce that spike in forces and twisting speed that then hit the driver's hands without this steering damper being almost just a solid piece of metal (laughs) basically make the steering rack uh the steering column solid which doesn't really allow you to turn the car so as i recall they found that it could do some things in a you know lower speed if it was a minor hit a you know not a huge high speed one but maybe a lower speed where it was a bump and there was a slight jolt to the steering wheel it could help in that lower scenario but if it was a hard hit which tended to be the ones that were doing the most damage that was the scenario that they were finding the most problems with 
It was insufficient. Uh, let's go to... You know, there, here's one about Hinch. Asking about taking a sabbatical. This comes from Insomniac 1995. Definitely heard that there could be interest on the NBC Sports side if he doesn't find a full-time drive. I know that some friends on the IMSA side have reached out. I don't know if they inquired about his availability, meaning, hey, we have a ride, do you want it? Or if it was more of a, hey, if you're interested in coming over here, we let's talk, see what we can come up with, right? One's kind of a want to fill a spot with your name versus... Let us know, and if you are, then we'll see if maybe something can be conjured up that isn't here now. I don't know which scenario is what happened, but I do know for a fact he has received some calls from folks on the IMSA side because I've spoken with the folks that made those calls. Um, There is a definite possibility he could be out of a full-time seat, and so... On the hashtag me personally front, I would say that I would be very concerned for his ongoing status as an IndyCar driver if either of those scenarios play out. He is so good, as we know, in front of a camera with a microphone that it's almost one of those talents you don't want to demonstrate. (laughs) I don't remember which comedian did this routine. Uh, I recall hearing it as a kid, but he said he hated doing housework. He hated doing home repairs. And so his wife would often ask him to go into the basement and fix the water heater and go out to the garage and repair the this. And anyways, his routine was basically I'd go out and actually mess those things up even worse because I didn't want to do them. I didn't want her to know that I could, so I just made a complete mess of things. So she ended up calling an expert, Uh, and so that's how I got out of things. That little comedy routine comes to mind a little bit for Hinch in terms of doing TV. I don't know if at this stage he wants to reaffirm and let it be seen on every broadcast how good he is at doing that. Because I fear that would be the thing where folks said, hey, man, you had a really awesome nine-year career in IndyCar. We love you. Uh, You're going to be able to do a ton of stuff outside the car now because NBC is going to want to use you here and there and send you all over the place. Not just IndyCar. You might be doing uh, the morning show on whatever and the evening show. And My fear for James is that he could and would become a racing personality instead of a race car driver. And so that's why I really want to see him back in a car (laughs) for among all the other reasons. Uh, If he steps out and shows folks how good he is, I, I don't know if there's going to be that same urgency to get him back into a car because his value in helping to connect people to the sport with a microphone in hand might actually be judged as greatest use of his talents. Other thing, too, is on the IMSA side, of course we want to see him driving, of course we want to see him active, earning an income. 
He's done lots of IMSA things and ALMS things and Grand Am things over the years, guest drives, uh, endurance races. If he heads to IMSA next year, if that's where he ends up, because that's the only opportunity he has, we're never going to see him again in IndyCar, not in a full-time seat. Indy 500, sure. We know how good he is at Indy. But you go to IMSA, you go to IMSA full-time, you know, this is not a criticism. This is nothing negative about IMSA, but just mindset. The IndyCar side, there's a there tends to be a thing. You show show the willingness to go over there, questions start to come in about how much you truly want to be an IndyCar. It's silly, it's dumb, but don't misunderestimate as I make up a word. Don't misunderestimate how much IndyCar team owners in general view the opportunities they provide as special, as a gift. And when folks that have those, quote, gifts to give, even if you're paying for it, even if you're bringing half the money, there, there can be a pretty strong perception of, oh, so you'd rather go over there? Okay, well, maybe, uh, maybe you're not worthy of receiving what I have to give. It's a weird thing. It's a dumb thing, but I've seen it happen many times. You head over to sports cars. It's considered by too many a mental switch in that driver's makeup. All right, well, let me go to the place where the old old stereotype of you know forties pudgy around the middle, lost a couple tenths, don't quite have the hunger you did in open wheel. Head over to sports cars, race for another five, ten years, and enjoy your retirement. I know a lot of that has changed, but keep in mind that the folks who own and run IndyCar teams are still, you know, these are folks that have been around forever, and their mindsets haven't necessarily modernized on that front as well. Let's go to S. Blakey777. Marshall, with the mention of the Astor Cup and its, quote, significance to IndyCar. It and the fact that I'm from Brooklyn got me thinking of other New York City auto racing history. Do you have any memories of the old Bridgehampton circuit? There's some great footage of it in the Janet Guthrie 30 for 30 special. I'd give anything to have a circuit like that back in the New York area. That comes from Sam. Certainly don't have any firsthand memories of it, Sam. Other than reading about it, other than hearing, I think my father, I can't tell you whether he attended races there, saw film or footage of something. He spoke of Bridgehampton as a uh, pucker factor circuit, uh, something where, yeah, uh, your, your backside puckers quite a bit. Would be lying if I said I knew a lot about it, but I know that in my mental list of old tracks that I wish I had had seen driven on. Yeah, Bridgehampton is certainly certainly there. Question from Pale Blue Dot 24, aka Nathan. Says, "Do you know what Hunko's Racing's plans are for the 2020 IndyCar season? I'm assuming they run at least Indy, but any word on additional races and if Kyle Kaiser will still be their driver?" Hashtag me personally. As one of the biggest Road to Indy supporters, I would love to see them run a full-time IndyCar schedule. Uh, you got a couple other questions here, Nathan. I'll, I'll start with this. I don't know. Ricardo sent me a, a text 
here about a week ago and uh, haven't had a chance to catch up with him since. I know that when we saw each other in Monterey for the season finale, or was it the IMSA race? I don't know. My brain's melting already. Uh, we just saw each other, only had a couple moments, just gave him a quick hug, loved the guy, just as a human being. Amazing guy. And said, hey, we need to catch up. And he said, yeah, I got, you know, need to catch up on some things here. So have to plead ignorance on this one, Nathan. Just Ricardo is truly on my list of folks I need to ring. Uh, he also said on this topic, topic, what is the incentive for owners to start a road to indie team? Do they all have aspirations of eventually becoming IndyCar team owners? Is it a hobby for people with lots of money? Is there much financial incentive to just have a USF 2000 team? Another great question. The answer is yes. <laughs> uh, lots of different motivations. So think about some of the traditional ways to forming what we call road to indie teams nowadays. It is local racer, love racing, do things in NASA, the SCCA, something like that. Maybe put together a prep shop field some cars for people. They bring me their cars. They bring us their cars. We prepare them, take them to the track. And we're the professionals that, you know, all they have to do is it's called an arrive and drive. Basically in some instances, you have folks who have the money where they buy a couple of open wheel cars and rent those out. Same arrive and drive scenario. And with success, with aspirations, you can sometimes see those teams say, well, great. We're enjoying this. This is awesome. We're, we're, kicking butt here regionally maybe we could have a pro aspect as well and so they search for drivers they might even have a young driver who is showing promise on whatever regional circuit that they're running them in and try and move up so that the the prep shop that does something in pick whatever region that is doing well and wants to try and go the pro route you'll often find they still have the, the quote, amateur options too, where, yeah, they might be competing at a Road to Indy event at Circuit X, and on the same weekend, they might have cars running, you know, in whatever U.S. or Canadian region or wherever, uh, doing things there just on the, the amateur level. So you got that. You then have, in some instances, you have a Jay Howard, former driver, said, okay, well, this racing thing, full-time, it's no longer an option for me, but, you know, been able to put together a little bit of money over the years. I have some coaching clients. That's often a thing that happens. Drivers that have younger drivers that they coach or paid to coach by their parents in many instances. Well, hey, what if I put together a team? And so they buy some cars, lease some cars, and or have their clients buy the cars for, you know, buy a car, send it to me, we'll build it, we'll look after it. Uh, here's the budget to run little Johnny or little Susie. And that's what they do. And they build up their stable and they show well, and they add second, third, fourth cars. You could have a scenario where former crew chief, chief mechanic type, type scenario, team manager, John Comiskey is one of them who started his own racing team. And that got phased out after a couple of years, but now he's looking after another racing team on the road to Indy. So that's super good couple different layers to this honestly nathan where whether it's the driver who wants to start a team and tends to start more on the the ground level and building up 
You could have the person that ran a team was chief mechanic wanting to continue, but control their own destiny instead of work for someone else, try and put something together their own. And then you often just have the local prep shops that do well, show well, maybe win a championship, right? SEC national championship runoffs, whatever, and use that as a springboard to step up and start working their way, hopefully towards IndyCar, but need to be, clear though that not every team on the road to indy has aspirations of joining indycar many of them that's how they earn their living not saying they earn a huge living but running drivers every year uh, that is where they make their profits that's how they pay the mortgage put the kids through college and whatever else and there are some who've been there forever and will be there forever and are just fine doing the road to indy and there are others where you can see clearly um, Michael Duncalf, for example, with the exclusive autosport team, regional Canadian stuff, did things sponsoring some drivers and some touring car stuff and World Challenge and or what we now call IMSA. Um, cool stuff there. Expand the cars, step up, get to the road to Indy, doing some good things in road to Indy, wanting to work up road to Indy, get to Indy lights, want to get to IndyCar. Those are the folks that uh, they're more the rarity, unfortunately. There used to be many folks who wanted to be IndyCar team owners, put plans in motion to do that incrementally, tended to be the folks with more passion than outright money to go buy a bunch of new IndyCars from Lola or March or whomever, get their Cosworths, their Chevys, their whatevers. Don't have a ton of those folks anymore, but it is pretty cool when we see someone or a handful of folks come along the road to Indy and it's clear there they have a three, five year business plan to get to the top. Let's go to to, to let's go to business dash travel. I just love your screen name. It's curious to know what's going on with Carlin at the moment. Are they planning on announcing a driver lineup anytime soon? I talked with one of my sources involved with an IndyCar team who mentioned Connor Daly was back on Trevor's list after the spam deal fell through. Got another question or two I'll get to in a moment. Thing that I've heard, can't tell you if it's accurate, tell you that it makes sense in my head, is while there's significant interest in Connor from a talent standpoint on the Carlin side, I think there might be a hiccup in terms of nationalities and sponsors. So if we, we know the one sponsor that Connor has that he brings with him, and that's United States Air Force. Although Carlin Racing has a U.S. base, this is a British-flagged team. British-owned, British home base. Love the Brits. Love the U.K. Love everything about it. But I, I've heard from some fairly decent people that if the air force is going to spend money to support young Connor Daly, it would need to be with an American team. So where this could be a hiccup is if Connor wants to work with the air force, that would not be Carlin racing. If Carlin racing has the money to hire him, which would be a great thing I haven't heard of, it sounds like he might need, in almost a Hinchcliffian way, 
if he's going to stay, he might have to jettison the partner sponsor that has been pretty good to him. So, yeah, that's what I've heard on that front. I also ask, is Trevor seriously considering adding a third entry for next season? A couple of weeks back, there's a rumor online that mentioned Trevor would like to expand his team down the line. I would say that a three-car Carlin racing team would be something that makes a lot of sense. Issue now is I cannot think of anyone bringing a complete budget for the entire season, barring possibly Max Chilton through Gallagher uh, and or something facilitated by his father, Graham Chili Chilton, awesome dude, who is and has been the financial engine behind that team for a while. So they do great things, truly. I mean, Carlin Racing and all the positive things they contribute to the sport. Uh, Chili Chilton, (laughs) don't underestimate, don't misunderestimate how important he is to the great things Carlin Racing has been able to do for a while now. If they're able to put a full budget behind the entry max drives, provided he drives again, we don't know what his plans are. I've heard that they fluctuate. I hope we have them back. I really do. Don't know if it'd be for the Indy 500 only. Don't know if he would do any ovals. Don't know if the Indy 500 is something he would want to do again. And we know that he stepped away from the ovals after Indy. Obviously didn't qualify there, but we don't know. I've heard of so many different things. Max will be back for one race, the 500, because it's the Indy 500. Max will not be back at all. I've heard Max will come back and do the road street courses only, which is the plan he came up with. I've heard uh, maybe he wants to test with the arrow screen and see if that changes his mind at all regarding his plans for next year, how much or how little he might do. Truly don't know. So if there were drivers with proper funding, I would say that Carlin would be the perfect destination for them to consider. Two cars, three cars, you name it. We're just in a wait-and-see mode, honestly, to try and identify who might be there with enough money to make things happen. Hailing back to an episode from, I don't know, maybe a month ago, if not longer, there are plenty of folks with that 2 to $3 million, not the 5 to $6 million that's really needed. Could there be a scenario where Trevor has one, if not two cars and four drivers in theory, splitting roads and street courses? And there could be a rotation of drivers to keep those two entries on the grid at every round. That I think is very likely not saying I know that because they've told me, I'm just saying the amount of people with the ability to cover half a season's budget. uh, There are those people, more of those people than really anyone walking around with a single full-season budget to take command of one car for the full year. So, uh, yeah, much less getting to three right now. All right, going to wind down a little bit here. Question here from Rise3711. Obviously, the main talk going around is about Spam and Hinch, but still no definitive word of where Shank is going to end up and where he's going to move his alliance to. Doesn't sound like he's going to go out on his own. Any word if the Chip Ganassi racing rumors are true. Could he be the third car at Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan? Can't be Andretti, right? Also says thanks to everything that Miller and I do for IndyCar. I believe we are on the clock now for official IndyCar news coming from Shank. 
if it's anything other than returning to Andretti Autosport in an alliance there, I will be very surprised. So there you go. You know, that's it. (laughs) What I'd love to tell you here is I've been drunk the entire time. I'm not. Uh, I haven't been, but yeah, I don't know. I just feel the need to apologize. This might've been the worst episode ever. Uh, I'm doing my best here. Um, My best clearly is not good enough. I forgot to send out questions on Twitter for questions there. Uh, I've made up new words that don't exist. Uh, I've said words that I know aren't real words just because they came to mind because that's what's happening right now. And the amount of edits and stumbles I have had to go through and cut out just in addition to the ones I've left in. Yeah. So take pity on me. Say prayers. Mercy is needed. Uh, I don't know. I hope I entertained you a little bit. I promise to do better next week. Keep it goodbye to how badly I did this week. Better next week could be barely perceptible. But nonetheless, thank you as always. Seriously, thank you as always for sending in a lot of great questions. The fun alternative ones, those are a blast as well. So look forward to whatever comes down the pipeline next week here on The Week in IndyCar. Their listener Q&A show just for you, made by you, made by your questions, and brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA.